This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm the senior pastor here. Uh, just a couple of notes. One, we're, we're getting closer over here. That door is still locked, but on this side too, parents, just, just beware of kids. There's like construction kind of going on back here. Uh, second note is you'll notice my children are wearing Kansas City Chiefs gear. Uh, that is because I am from Kansas City. However, tonight will be the second whole football game I've watched this season. Uh, I do not know a lot about what's going on, but grandparents uh, sent the, the kind of get up anyway for the kids, so that's what they're wearing. We have been uh, in the sermon series on Ephesians, and so far in Ephesians, we have listened as Paul has, has told us what the church needs. And he started with, the church really needs a God who is sovereign over every detail. And then he came and zoomed in, he said, what the church really needs is, is each other. And now we're going to look today on how we might have spiritual maturity, you see, right here in the book of Ephesians, Paul's kind of making a transition. He's kind of spoken in very high, lofty, doxological language, if you remember that from last week, I threw that word around. Uh, and he's about to zoom in and get very uh, specific on things that we, we need to change, that his audience in, in Ephesus needed to change, but that we also need to change. And so here in chapter 4, he makes this transition talking about what it looks like to be spiritually mature. So actually, this morning, I'm going to start with the reading of God's Word. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So I wanted to start with the reading of God's Word. Usually I give a little bit more intro on where we're going to be, but I wanted to start with it because I wanted to focus on the words actually in verse 14 because I think they strike our hearts in a particular way. So that we may no longer be children, that word children can also be translated infants, 
so that we may no longer be infants, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so I've got a question. Paul, Paul throughout this passage is going to be talking about what it means to be mature. Do you think you are spiritually mature? How do you know and what would you need? And I think anyone with any amount of humility has to confess that there are many ways in which we are spiritually immature. After all, we sing in that great hymn, Lord, I'm prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. But can you identify what it is that tends to blow you about? What tends to toss you to and fro like the waves? What makes you act like a little child? Here are some ways that I've thought about recently this last week. We're blown about by parenting podcasts. Ashamed about what we should be doing better. And it pushes us here and there. We're carried about by every political news outlet. We're controlled by the market. We're obsessed with being insiders, always in the know about the newest tech or investment opportunity. We long for where the grass is always greener. We're discontent where God has us at the moment. But these aren't the only things that blow us about. These are maybe self-inflicted wounds. There's also the blows from the outside, the sudden losses, the bad news, the false accusations, the suffering, pain, and loss that marks our lives, that blows us about like children. But here in this passage, we have this holy calling to be mature in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And as we think about this idea of maturity, I wanted us to reflect briefly on how we as humans mature. You know, I've got small children, and so I tend to think about how their bodies mature, and Alora my daughter, who's 10 months old, to come uh, to full maturity, maturity needs to be weaned. She needs to go from milk to real food. And so we as her parents actually give her gifts that are at her level, right? We boil the apples and the carrots so that she can eat them. We give her yogurt that she can run through her hair. And it's an absolute mess and an absolute joy. But she needs these gifts from us to come to complete maturity. She couldn't do it on her own or risk choking and Paul's going to say that spiritual maturity happens in very much the same way. In verse 7, Paul says that we need gifts that come from God. God our Father, as he's called in verse 6. This word grace in verse 7, if you're looking at your passage there, that can also be translated as gifts. So we could read it maybe like this. But gifts were given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The idea of this passage is this, as we go through passage, uh, verses 8, and, uh, 8, 9, and 10, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to explain this, um, but it sounds a little weird at first, and we might have a lot of questions. He's quoting a psalm, and he's basically describing Jesus as the authoritative one who is able to give us gifts. So because D Jesus was from on high, he descended into the earth, defeated his enemies, death, and so therefore leads a host of captives back into heaven, he's defeated his enemies, and he has the authority then to give gifts to his people for their maturity. So what are these gifts that we need in order to be spiritually mature? What do we need? Paul's going to say in this passage that what we need is pastors and we need each other. We need pastors and we need each other. So first, the gift of pastors. I want you to look at verse 11. It says, and Jesus gave, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers. Now, you might be saying at first, you're like, Zach, that doesn't look like one gift. That looks like four. 
And in some ways you'd be right, but I think they're all connected, so hear me out. Uh, first, I think he's using the terms apostles and prophets technically as he was earlier in Ephesians. So if you'll remember, earlier in Ephesians, he used apostles and prophets to refer uh, to those uh, who were writing down God's word, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New. That's who it is for us today. He's saying that they need to read, study, and proclaim the words of the prophets and the apostles. The first gift that God has given you to grow into full maturity is his word as recorded by his apostles and prophets, the Bible. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Bible. And you need to use that gift. Now, Kyle, a couple weeks ago, used the analogy of Legos. And really, you know, Paul wrote this letter. He didn't write it like 16 verses at a time. You know, he wrote it kind of all at once. Um, and so all of these ideas are kind of repeating throughout the whole book. So Kyle used this idea of Legos and that uh, we are all Legos kind of uh, built together. And I'm going to carry through that analogy a little bit. But for the foundation, I don't know if you guys remember, like way back, Legos used to have these like green foundation pieces that you would snap like build your Legos on top of. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, and it made like the structure more rigid. I don't feel like they like sell those anymore. I mean, maybe like built into a table or something. They do? Okay, someone's saying they do. I just don't see them very often. Um, but these, these foundations, right, help make the whole structure more rigid. And what Paul is saying here is that foundation that we are built upon is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The Bible. It defines the boundaries of our spiritual maturity. It tells us what it needs to look like. It provides the structure to make it strong and stable in the midst of everything blown about. But if we're honest, the Bible is a little bit challenging, right? Like, I don't know if you ever just read through the Old Testament and then tried to reconcile it with uh, the stories you read about Jesus in the New Testament. There are many questions, aren't there, right? Well, this gift continues unfolding, this gift of the apostles and prophets. In more detail, Paul says it's not only the apostles and prophets, it's also the evangelists. And here we think Paul is referring to those who traveled and planted churches like Barnabas, who was not considered an apostle himself, but who did travel and ordain leaders and then moved on to plant other churches. Next, he gives the shepherd teachers. Now, I know if you're looking in your passage there, it says shepherds and teachers. And I know we're, we're going we're to go a little bit deep here, but hang with me. The word the in English is very important. Uh, and that definite article is actually very important in Greek as well. And so you would see there that it says the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and it doesn't say the shepherds and the teachers, but it says the shepherds and teachers. And so I believe with many other commentators as well that what Paul is trying to signify there is that those shepherd teachers are actually one office, and that's a pastor. And a pastor, in contrast to the evangelist per se who planted the church, was the one who permanently stayed in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel week after week. In order for the Ephesians to be mature, they needed God's word through the apostles and the prophets, and they needed a pastor to teach it to them. Their pastor was their gift from God for their spiritual maturity. Now, here's where things are going to get a little weird, because I'm about to say that I am your gift for your spiritual maturity. <laughs> and that feels a little weird to say. But I want to correct a couple of errors that we tend to do when we do this, because I do think that's what this text is saying. We have maybe two ditches that we fall on on this road of, of pastoral ministry. On the one hand, we elevate pastors too highly, and on the other hand, we don't elevate pastors highly enough. So first, I'm going to tackle the first one. We elevate pastors too highly. Uh, some of you maybe grew up uh, in churches where they did this, either by the pastor's advocacy or just the church culture in general. But what it fundamentally meant was that the pastor's words at all times were supremely authoritative. And to question them was to question Jesus. 
So I'm going to want to cor- correct this view a little bit. There is a sense where in preaching on a Sunday morning, we do something special here. My words in this sermon are authoritative in, in a special way. Not supremely authoritative, but, but authoritative. I'm given a certain kind of authority by the ordination of God and the authority of this local body. But all spiritual, mature believers should embody a certain kind of ethos in their ministry. And this includes pastors. And Paul describes what this ethos looks like in verses 2 and 3. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I know a lot of pastors who are self-assertive and domineering, more interested in building a brand of self than they are with bearing with one another in love and maintaining bonds of unity and peace in the Spirit. We're all called to live into this, but it is dangerous to elevate pastors who are sinful human beings as well to a, a state where they are authoritatively speaking as Jesus all of the time. There are some pastors who are pastors in title and not pastors in heart. Some of them are wolves in sheep's clothing. Some of them are fools. And it actually takes a fair amount of difference, a fair amount of Christian maturity to know the difference. We're looking for a particular kind of ethos in every single one of the believers that follow Jesus. Now, on the other hand, some of you don't elevate your pastors high enough uh, and this is how we tend to do it. We tend to think that they're, they're even a little bit less than teachers, uh, that their advice is to be questioned and challenged uh, maybe at every turn, but especially when it ruffles our feathers. Like they politically say something that kind of rubs us the wrong way or just our gut tells us that can't be right. And so we feel that it's our duty to always catch them after the service um, and tell them that. Now, there is a sense, I'm going to correct this view a little bit. Now, there is a sense where, like the Bereans, you are to evaluate everything that I say. The pastor teachers that Paul is speaking about are not an authority in and of themselves, right? The authority is uh, the word of God as communicated by the apostles and prophets. The authority of pastor teachers is established by the authority of the apostles and prophets. You may, by conviction disagree with me on some theological positions that I hold and teach. But if you use that disagreement to neglect me as the gift that God has given you for your spiritual maturity, then you will continue in spiritual immaturity. That sounds a little arrogant to say, doesn't it? (laughs) I wrote it and I was like, I don't know, can I say that? But here's what made me feel like I needed to say it. I think this actually works the other way as well. And we're going to get there in our second point a little bit later, but I want to mention it here. To the extent that I use our theological disagreements to wound and harshly lead my sheep is to the extent that I will also be stuck in spiritual immaturity. Paul, a little bit later, we're going to look at it then as well, says, we might be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Like, he includes himself an apostle. That says, when the gifts aren't used properly in the body, we all can be blown about. A pastor is not the foundation of the Lego set, but he's the guy who's supposed to know where the foundations are. He's supposed to look at the construction going on and go, wait a second, that's not built on the green little platform. That's not going to be very strong. Let's like nudge that the other way and, and, and build it over here. We're a gift from God so, so that the structure might be built 
on a firm foundation. But this is where the analogy breaks down a little bit because the pastor is not outside of the Lego set himself. He, he himself is a Lego piece, you know? He's like bound uh, to the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so he too is dependent upon the rigidity of the whole structure. So what, what does it look like for a pastor to be for the benefit of your spiritual maturity? Well, first is teaching. You know, that shepherd-teacher mentality. I'm here to correct your thinking about the Bible. Now, I'm not here to make you all Presbyterian, although I do believe the doctrines that our denomination holds to. Um, you know, in our membership class, we'll often talk about kind of these circles of doctrinal importance is what we call them. Uh, and the core is like what makes us all Christian. And then we have secondary and tertiary doctrines. And we like to say here um, that what really matters is those core doctrines. You must affirm those to be a member here at Trinity Church. But the secondary and tertiary, we can disagree on, you know? Pastor's duty is to make that core stronger. If I can say it this way, even if you're a Baptist, even if you're an Arminian, if you don't know what those words mean, don't worry. If you do, then you're with me. I want you to be a more mature Baptist and more mature Arminian. I want you to have a stronger core to know Jesus better. I want to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is the first way that I help you in your spiritual maturity. It's through teaching. And whether that's individual and you asking for a coffee and asking for a time to talk, or whether it's uh, through here in the public proclamation of the Word or through theology corners or other teaching opportunities, that's what I'm here for. Please don't neglect me. I'm trying not to sound pompous and arrogant about it. We're going to get there in a second. Uh, But I really do believe that this is what the passage is saying that God gives us pastors for our spiritual maturity. But there's a second way that pastors are given for your spiritual maturity. It's not just to correct thinking, but it has to do with pastoral presence. I mentioned this a couple sermons ago, but there are better preachers than me. There are better teachers, there are better theologians, there are better counselors. But I recently heard someone say that discipleship can't really happen through a screen. I'm a flesh and blood pastor right here. And here's what this means. I'm not able to just doctrinally tell you about grief, but I'm able to pray with you at the funeral home. I'm not just a pastor who's able to acknowledge the difficulty of hospital room visits, but I'm able to enter the freezing cold hospital of Puerto Rico and experience all of that with you. Weak and feeble though though I may be. I'm not just able to talk about general marriage principles, but I help to seek apply those general marriage principles to your marriage. I'm not a disembodied voice on a face or a screen. I am God's gift, however weak and feeble, and I am in many ways to you. The way that God has intended us to mature together is that we are content to bear with, in all humility and gentleness, our weak, feeble, and immature gifts, whether that is our pastor or each other's. So that's going to bring us to our second point. So our first gift we get pastors. Our second gift is that we have each other. Notice in verse 14 that Paul says, we might not be thrown about. I talked about this earlier. He includes himself as an apostle, as someone who might be thrown about by every wind of doctrine if the church is not utilizing its gifts like it should. So look at, look at verse 7. Grace wasn't just given to your pastors for maturity, but it was given to each one of us. Now look at verse 12. The pastors, verse 12, are to equip who for the work of ministry and building up of Christ? The saints. That's you. And this is really important because many of us think that pastors are supposed to do all the ministry, that pastors are supposed to be doing all of the building of the body of Christ, 
But pastors are actually to equip the saints, you, to do ministry and building up of the body. We all have a responsibility to mature together. Look at verse 15. We are to grow up every way into Christ. We. See those plural words. Verse 16. From whom the whole body being joined together, joined and held together by every joint. Every joint is necessary with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If we go back to our Lego analogy, and this is kind of what Kyle was saying in his sermon, we're not all like the blue Legos. We're all uniquely gifted. And our sovereign risen king has put us here at this place in this time for his purposes. Here's what this means for Trinity. If you are a Christian at Trinity, Trinity needs you in the way that God has gifted you. You're not just a consumer. You're not just a giver or a tither. You are a member of this church with an invaluable gift that Jesus gave for our collective maturity. Without you, we will be less mature, less holy formed. And you know what's crazy? Like God's more creative than we could ever be. And so oftentimes what happens is like we have limited spaces for how I like might serve in the church. And I'm gonna talk about this a little bit later, but Trinity does not have volunteer opportunities that match up with probably uh, more than 10% of you. I said that a little weird. Your gifts to serve Trinity probably aren't going to find a home in our volunteer opportunities of setting up and tearing down. Your gifts for our maturity are probably going to look a little bit different. God isn't just calling you to volunteer at the church, but to contribute to her maturity. So I want to frame this this way. Do you know what your spiritual gifts are? Some of you probably do. Some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of us have never considered that we might have a spiritual gift, whether because we're relatively new to the faith or just no one's ever asked us. But it says that each one has been given a gift. Have you ever thought that not using your gift in the church might be a sin against the body? Some of us simply, we know our gifts, but we don't want to steward it for the sake of the church. We use our gifts to serve ourselves. Why would we work at building the church when we can build our own kingdoms? Or maybe an alternative view of this. Using my gifts to serve the church is an obligation. Why would I serve the church in this way when it is so inefficient to do so? Aren't my, aren't my skills better used elsewhere? Some of us don't use our spiritual gifts because we're jealous of other spiritual gifts. I think this happens a lot. Uh, some of us think like, you know, the only way to be holy is to be a pastor. The only way uh, that God really appreciates service is if we do these, uh, you know, volunteer in poor communities, which is, is serving God. I'm not trying to dismiss that at all. But one commentator said it this way, the Christians that I know who have made the greatest shipwrecks of their lives for reasons other than blatant sin, I'm just going to say that again, the Christians that I know who have made the greatest shipwrecks of their lives for reasons other than blatant sin are those who have not been satisfied with the calling of their specific gifts. They always wanted to be someone else. Now, I'm not going to run through a list of spiritual gifts in this sermon, mostly because Paul doesn't in this passage. But I also believe it's because God has an almost infinite amount of spiritual gifts. He is more creative than I could possibly imagine. 
And he also causes people to grow, develop, and change throughout their lives so that this season of your life, God might be calling you to cultivate a new gift for others. And here's what that might mean. You might be called to serve some way in this community, and you might be bad at it. (laughs) And it's okay for you to explore here. We are supposed to bear with one another in all humility and gentleness as we strive towards maturity. And that bearing with one another, even when we're bad at using our gifts, does something profound about making us rock solid in Jesus. Because we're not dependent upon perfectionism. We're dependent upon the gifts that God has given us. There's a couple more notes that I can say about each other and our gifts. First, there's an age-old adage that 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the church. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That probably applies to other places as well, but I've heard it applied to the church. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And I just want to acknowledge that sometimes those 20% of those people that are doing 80% of the work are doing exactly what God made them to do. Like they're helpers and they were made that way and they're serving the church at just the right time that the church needs it. However, we would say that anybody can serve in this capacity for short bursts, but God didn't design them to serve that way for forever. It is our duty as the rest of the body to grow in maturity to see, recognize, and thank those people, but also see, recognize, and go, can I take that off of your plate? I think I'm actually gifted to do that. Can I do that? Now, that means I also have to speak not to the 80%, but to the 20%. You have to let people help you. And I know that's hard for some of us that are perfectionists because we just be like, you know what, it'll be easier and faster if I just do it myself. And you're probably right. But you'd be shortchanging not only the whole church's maturity, but an individual from maturing in their own gift. Finally, I want to recognize that sometimes in this conversation of spiritual gifts, some of you have been manipulated to use your gifts in ways that don't serve the body as a whole, but serve the platform of a leader. Your gifts were used not for maturity, but for profit, growth, name, and brand. And I I know some of you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, and you should count yourselves blessed. But for those of you who do, I want to apologize on behalf of those leaders. And if your gifts were used and abused, I want you to know that abuse does not negate proper use. And so I would encourage you, along with Paul, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to not neglect your gifts, your own spiritual maturity, or ours as we strive together to grow more rigid and secure in Christ against the besetting waves. Okay, so we've seen that what we really need to not be blown about by every wind of doctrine is pastors and each other. What we need is the church. It's pastors and its members, right? Church properly utilized and functioning means the pastors are equipping the people. Every joint is operating as it should. But if you've ever been a part of any church for any amount of time, and that includes Trinity, you know that almost none of the joints are working as they should. They're old and creaky and arthritic, uh, and there's illnesses that have infected them, and they're just, they're not quite right, and we can all see it. For instance, Trinity lacks some spiritual gifts right now. We have a relatively high turnover in our populace, right? And the flexibility and adaptability of our ministries that our whole body has to make to kind of the turnover of people that we have is challenging and sometimes exhausting. But we we shouldn't despair that we would ever reach maturity. You know, we can't can't say, well, then maturity is just out of reach for us. We just can't do it until we get a critical mass of people. No. 
Our maturity does not depend upon us. We are dependent upon the fullness of Christ himself and the gifts that he gives us. So here's what that means. As we look around at our body or any church that you're a part of, if you're visiting with us today, and you see those areas that are weak, and you know that we don't have the gifts necessary inside of our church, we cry out to the one who gives good gifts and say, Lord, please provide for us. And until you do, allow us to be humble in our weakness, to be utterly dependent upon you, because the church is not independent of Jesus, and our spiritual maturity is not independent of Jesus. Jesus isn't standing far away and waiting for you to grow up into, into full spiritual maturity. Jesus, like I am with Alora, is boiling the apples uh, and carrots and hands feeding you so that you will grow up into full maturity. And he's doing that on a corporate scale to all of us, not just as individuals, but he's using each other so that we might be knit together into this big Lego creation that is rigid and strong. The church is not independent of Jesus, but utterly dependent upon him, our head, the victorious king. And I believe that it is his will that this side of heaven, no church will be completely mature. If you're going to visit churches and you're like, this church has got it all figured out, I would encourage you to just wait. (laughs) We will still be lacking in complete maturity. I believe that it is Jesus' desire that the church will be imperfectly mature to show his own sufficient power to make perfect that which is so obviously imperfect. He makes perfect that which is so obviously imperfect. The danger for us in our imperfect churches is thinking that we've got it all figured out. The danger for us is even if we are working exceptionally properly and the joints are moving, is to not have humility, gentleness, eager for unity. Jesus will one day come and complete the process of maturing his church and maturing all of us. But between now and then, when we're assaulted on all sides by our own weaknesses and by the harshness of this world, when we're blown about to and fro by our own brokenness, We cling to those good gifts that he has given us here and now. Our weak and feeble pastors, our weak and feeble fellow members in our church, and we depend upon these good gifts as God intended us to. We come to some sense of dependent maturity upon Jesus Christ himself to provide that which we most desperately need. And if you were to read back through this passage, I just want to make one thing clear. Jesus is the image of the mature human being. Read through this passage and see it. He's the head. He has the complete gifts. He has all the authority to give the gifts. It is upon him that we are all utterly dependent at every turn. But he is an immovable rock in the midst of storms. And he gives us the good gifts, good gifts that we need to be secure in him. Amen? This table is actually intended to root us in the midst of life storms in those things that are true. Christ's body and his blood is sufficient for us. The immovable rock that will accomplish what he set out to do. And even in this little meal, because let's, I mean, let's be honest, I mean, this, this little like 
piece of bread and little like thimble of wine, you know, it's just kind of a poor substitute for a whole meal with Jesus, right? But in some sense, it's asking us to remember the fullness of the promise, to be nourished by his words and his promise that he has not left or forsaken us, that even in the midst of life's storms, that he gives us good gifts that we can cling on to here and now. This isn't just an, like a, a reminder to say, you know what, uh, someday everything will be made right, but now, yeah, it's just going to be hit or miss. He's saying, right now, I'm giving gifts to my church. Right now, I am sustaining her. Right now, I am sanctifying her with my body and my blood. As such, participation in this meal, taking part of the bread and the wine, is intended for Christians. It's intended for those who have united themselves to Jesus in his death and resurrection through baptism. It's intended for those Christians who are at one with one another. That means that uh, they don't have any outstanding wrong against a brother or sister in Christ. So there's, there's two warnings here. If you're, if you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to partake uh, of this meal until you become one and you uh, declare that this is in fact true, that his body and his blood is sufficient. Uh, but the other warning in there is also that if you have some disagreement some wrongdoing against a brother or sister in Christ, that you would go make that right first before we come to this table and declare unity. Because we all come to this table partaking of the same body and the same blood. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to answer them or Kyle. Um, And also, I'd invite you to make use, if you're not partaking, of the prayer printed in our bulletin um, during this time. Now, the night that Jesus was betrayed, when his disciples rejected him, he took bread and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples as I am ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. In a moment, I'll pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, and then we're actually going to be at this serving station and that one. So if you're on, like, the left side of the row, try to go that way. Uh, And then as a note, there is a gluten-free option at that table only. So you're going to want to be on the left side of the line if you need gluten-free, and then you're going to want to notify Kyle, who's going to be over there serving. With me? Okay, great. The other thing to know is that there is red wine and clear grape juice. We ask that you please take according to your conscience. So if you would, please pray with me. Our Lord Jesus, in your body, you give us good gifts. You give us gifts of pastors and each other, and by your blood and body, you made us into one body, with you as the head, with various gifts and resources at play, that we might grow in maturity and stability and rigidity in you, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. As we partake of your body here this morning, your body and your blood, I ask that we would be reminded, not just with words, but by the taste in our mouth, how utterly dependent upon you we are for every good gift and every spiritual maturity. I ask that even through this meal, we might learn a deeper rest and deeper dependence upon you, the measure of mature humanity for your glory and for our salvation. Amen.